say say you were making boiled potatoes and uh you know the traditional way to do it would be to like you know you take your potato you wash your potato you peel your potato you boil your potato you grab the next potato you wash it peel it and boil it and i said but you know in in you know, in Q or in these Ray languages, you would, you know, wash all your potatoes, peel all your potatoes, boil all your potatoes. And he said, oh, great. You know, that's, that's, uh, I get that. That's really helpful. And then I said, but wait, there's, you know, there's this, there's this other level that I don't think I'm at. It's like, I'm striving to get there. That's why I I keep pursuing this is like, there's this other level where you know you boil your potatoes and you filter it for skins and dirt Welcome to another episode of Arraycast. I'm your host, Connor, and today with us, we have a special guest who we will get to introducing in a couple minutes. But before we do that, we'll go around and do brief introductions. We'll start with Stephen, then go to Bob, then go to Rich, and then to Marshall. I'm Stephen Taylor, APL and Q programmer. I'm Bob Terrio, a J enthusiast. I'm Rich Park. I'm an APL teacher evangelist at Dialog Limited. I'm Marshall Lockbaum. I'm a former J programmer and APL developer and now uh, the BQN developer. And as mentioned before, I'm your host, Connor, a research scientist at NVIDIA, C++ slash other languages, but huge array language fan. And we will get to introducing our guest, who I'm super excited to talk to uh, just after a couple short announcements. So I believe we have uh, three from Rich, then one from Steven, and then one from Marshall. Yeah, so I'll go in order from uh, closest to now to furthest away. So... Um, those of you who know or don't know, Adam and I have got another podcast because you can never have too many array language podcasts. Um, but we've rebranded as the APL show. So you can go find out about that on apl.shows. And yes, the availability of that domain name was uh, part of the decision to, <laughs> to, to call it that. Um, and, and it turns out in searching. Actually, we're now on a bunch of other services that uh, we finally figured out how to get the RSS feed coming out of GitHub pages. So we're on uh, what Spotify, Simplecast, Google Podcasts, Samsung Podcasts, iTunes, Apple News. It's unbelievable, isn't it, Bob? Um, <laughs> we actually managed to do that. Rusty's joined the club. <laughs> He's a, it's a podcast. It's actually a podcast, but we're calling it a show because uh, we're contrarian. So, um, but that's available now in the, mo- in the latest episode where we ramble about uh, some sort of higher level stuff about notations for describing structures and diagrams and things like that uh, is out to on apparently everywhere now, everywhere where you can listen to Wait, or watch things. What's what's the name? <laughs> it's the APL show. The APL show. <laughs> at apl.show connor's not happy i'm literally on my cell phone right now searching for this on my my app so, i mean literally this is like yesterday or the day before so. Uh, so it might not have it might not have updated this is big news like i've gone on itunes and i have to like filter down to podcasts to find it you know it just doesn't come up in the all this is too much uh <laughs> detail about the other podcasts for the listener though uh it, by the time you hear this it will probably be up because that'll be another three or four days before uh, it, it'll be on okay yeah F- going further out into the future march 12th there is it's not been one of these in quite a while so listeners might not be aware of what this is but uh adam used to host a fairly regular uh sort of live zoom panel with various figures from array language 
uh, life and history called the APL Campfire. And there's going to be a special return of the APL Campfire on March 12th with Norman Thompson, who is the author of APL Programs for the Mathematics Classroom and the co-author with uh, Ray Polivka of the book APL2 in depth. So we'll link to the APL wiki page about that in the show notes, no doubt. Uh, and then lastly, just um, another shout out for March 22nd, so that'll be 10 days after, APLC23 online meeting, which um, is an event hosted by Dialogue to enthuse people, new and prospective APL users, uh, people who might have heard of APL but not really know much about what it's about. Uh, come see a few talks and talk to a few APLers. Um, the sign-up is not ready as of speaking right now, hopefully by the time the episode comes out. Otherwise, there will be a link to the Dialogue webpage, which will be updated with registration information uh, as that happens. So many things I just learned about. Wow. All right. Apple Seeds 2023, the APL show and Campfire, of which we will talk about after the show. You should put that stuff on your podcast. All right. Over to Stephen, though. <laughs> well, we've we've fantasized on, the, on this podcast about a Raycon a, a conference for the array, array programming languages. And that remains a fantasy. But this year, in there will be a KXCon, and it's in Montauk, New York, 17th to 20th of May. I've got no details for you at this point. I'm just forecasting massive. <laughs> all right, awesome. We'll look forward to more details from that. Man, we're getting all, all the announcements that I uh, didn't know about. Um, all right, and finally, over to Marshall. Um, all right. So my announcement, um, you may know that uh, BQN is, uh, uses a self-hosted compiler that's written in BQN. And this means that um, in order to run the compiler, you compile the compiler and then you have bytecode, which your BQN VM runs. Um, now, this requires you to start with a compiler that's working. So... Um, what happens in practice is that actually we just compile the compiler for you and give you the bytecode for that, which is um, not good for a number of reasons. And a lot of people object to um, having this, um, I mean, you might call it a binary. Uh, it's not really binary, but it's bytecode that you have to just take from us and trust. Um, so what we have now that we've done is to uh, build up a chain to uh, to compile the compiler without um, re relying on any um, on any pre-compiled stuff. So what I did was take the compiler, um, simplify the syntax some, and but make sure it can still compile itself. And then I did that a few few more times and uh, got down to one with very simple syntax that I then um, mentioned. And Zyma then spent a day writing a compiler for it in C that works. So CBQN runs that very simple compiler and builds up this chain and you get the full one. Um, and I don't know if it's set up to do that automatically, but you definitely can now download the CBQN repository and the BQN sources and build your own compiler and compile the full one and verify that the one that we give you is actually the same. Um, and the other neat thing about this is that actually I have another BQN compiler that's equivalent to that simple C compiler. Some minor differences that, that um, I verified don't do anything to the performance. And the BQN one is actually twice as fast. So that's kind of cool. Um, so that's the announcement. Nothing, no big changes for any BQN users, but 
just an interesting thing that we did. BQN leaves the nest and enters the wide world. <laughs> well, it was the first array language to ever self-host. So there is that. Only one as far as I know. For now. For now. For now. Well, well we've got, we got decades ahead of us, so... All right. Well, that's all of our announcements. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to all of that stuff. Um, definitely the other APL podcast. But now we are going to introduce our guest who's been waiting in the wings. I'm super excited about this conversation. You've probably already read the title of this podcast. So, you know, today our guest is Michael Higginson, who if you follow the I'm not sure there's two different dialogue channels on YouTube. There's dialogue limited and then dialogue conferences or something. We'll put links to both. Uh, but Michael gave a talk that I think was released around October, November of 2022. So if you're listening to this live, that was two or three months ago. And he was the winner of the professional entrant in the Dialogue APL contest. So for those of us that don't know, or those of you that don't know, there are, it's a student contest, but, and I think you have to be enrolled in either a college or university across the globe. Uh, but you can still compete even if you are not a student and there is a uh, professional sort of category and you can win that. And Michael was the winner in 2022. So a little bit about Michael. This is in his own words. Uh, and this is on a blog that we will also um, put in the show notes that sort of talks about the winners of the context. Immediately after receiving my bachelor's uh, degree in computer science from the University of Toronto, so fellow Torontonian here, I joined a small company founded and populated by a number of ex-IPSA, that's IP Sharps and Associates uh, employees. I had a great time there and stayed for over 20 years. For most of those years, I didn't know anything about APL, except that it was different, that in that it used a non-standard character set and that it held in it was held in some reverence by my mentors and colleagues. But around 2013, I started working with the Q programming language and after a few battles with it, experienced a profound, quote, mental click, end quote, that irrevocably changed now just how, uh, changed not just how I think about programming, but most other areas that I turned to my mind uh, to as well. As I was curious about other languages in the family and looking for new challenge, I decided to use Dialogue Contest as a way to, an excuse to learn APL, and it was a great experience. So uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Michael back in September when we held the Toronto APL meetup. So it was awesome getting to chat with him a bit there. And I'm super excited to have him on the podcast. Uh, thanks for being here, Michael. And maybe you can, in your own words, once again, uh, take us back to however far you want to go back and, you know, give us a little bit more detail about your journey uh, to Q and then I guess to the APL contest. Sure. Well, well, thanks. Thanks, everyone, for having me. It's, it's great to be here. Um, I guess the the traditional starting point in this journey is is usually your first computer. Um, and so in that tradition, I will let you know that my first computer was a Commodore VIC-20 um, that I received as a Christmas gift um, as, a, as a little kid. Um, and so the VIC-20 was a, this was a, a, you know, a small computer where the computer and the keyboard were, were sort of just one object. And um, it had five kilobytes of RAM. And for storage, it had a, a cassette drive. Wow. So you, it would take a an audio cassette, and you could, um, you know, you'd issue a command to the computer to load off the the cassette player, and it would say press play on tape, and you would play, and then you press the you press the play button, and then being a little kid, I think I'd jump around the living room or whatever to uh, and and wait as as the cassette played, and then it would it would load the the program, um, and you know, and I think you know anyone of any member of a generation that had a, a, a computer in the house um, as a as a child, the uh, the sort of the gateway to computing for me, of course, was was video games. 
and and that's really all I did on it. I this was not the the computer that I learned to to program on. Although I had heard, you know, there was a rumor in the school ground that you could you could go to the library and get these take out a magazine you know i think there's a magazine called compute and maybe there were others and and in that magazine would be the the listings for um what would be a game so basically you could go to this get this magazine and there'd be you know basic um a basic program in on on the pages of the magazine and you could type it in your computer and then you could play a game so this was this was very exciting to me um, so I did that, and sure enough, it was there. But when I went to type in the um, when I went to type in the program, every time there was an asterisk, you know, for a, for a multiply or whatever, the when I typed it into the VIC twenty, it would be this big fat six pointed asterisk that took up you know a whole character width. And the asterisk that was printed in the in the magazine was a tiny little five-armed asterisk that was sort of up high. And they looked so different to me that I thought, well, that can't be right. So um, so I left them out. I thought, well, I don't want to <laughs> put in the wrong character. So I so I left it out and and you know, and this seemed epic. I'm sure it was just a couple pages, but you know, in in for a little kid, this was like a, a major operation. And so at, at some point I managed to, you know, I got the thing to run. Like I got I I hit run or whatever and the screen came up and I thought, okay, great, I did it. And then I you know, I think you were supposed to be a guy who could fly around the screen or something. And at the moment I tried to input something, um, of course I got a runtime error. And, you know, and as, and that was, you know, very disappointing. And I sort of, I sort of moved on. Although I often think if I had had someone in my life who knew more about this stuff and had said, you know, Michael, the game is actually to fix these errors. <laughs> I, I wonder, you know, maybe if, if my life, you know, how, it, how it would have played out after that, I got a, a IBM and XT clone. So I was sort of in the world of PCs and, and DOS and, um, and then, and a 386 or whatever. And at some point I got a modem and, and that was a real eye-opening experience once learning that these computers could talk to each other. Um, and this was sort of pre-internet, but there, you know, there were local uh, things called bulletin board systems. And it was sort of like the internet, but only one person could be on it at a time, but you could leave messages for each other on there and, and certainly some of my oldest friends still to this day are people I met through through those systems so um so so I wasn't a programmer but I was a computer user basically and um and so then so I got to high school and um my high school did co-op placements with with uh businesses and organizations and I guess what? What really? Yeah, your high school? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that is a uh, like you don't hear about that until university days. That's an impressive uh, feat for a high school. Yeah, it was sort of sort of interesting. And so, and I guess what had what had happened was that the um, the the high school had placed a student in a, a government ministry here in Ontario, um, and to work to help to be a co-op student on their help desk, on their tech technical support team. And I guess, you know, I don't know, maybe they didn't know what to do with, with, with him or whatever, but I guess they gave him some manuals for the system. 
And I think ultimately what he had done something, he'd found out a basically a way to send a message to every user in the system, which was like every employee of the ministry. So that like a, some sort of strange cryptic message that said something like, I am watching you or something like that came up on the screen of every employee of the ministry. And um, basically that didn't go over well. And um, they wanted the, I guess the, the school. And so he sort of lost his placement, I guess, over that. And I guess the school wanted to smooth things over. And, uh, and so I guess, so they went to me, I guess I was, you know, kind of smart and personable or whatever. And so they, they sent me in to replace them and as to, to, uh, to, to leave a, to give a better impression. So, so I did. And, and, and so that was sort of my kind of first technical, you know, job. I remember one of the projects I had to do is I, I went around and I had to install 46 upgrade chips into, into the computer into computers the computers the workstations being used by some of the programmers in the ministry and and uh and i kind of remember these programmers i thought of them as these sort of super beings like i knew how to use a computer but they were doing something totally different than what i was doing you know i'm sort of you know i know how to i don't know resize a window on windows which by the way was an application not a not an operating system back then um and but you know they were just doing something really different and what was sort of interesting to me is that they were sort of in a way they were like these super beings in that they could get a computer to do so many things but in other ways they were sort of they didn't know how to administer their own system like they kind of didn't know how to use a computer but they know they knew how to program one i just i thought that was really interesting some things don't change do they yeah no i ended up being one of those guys <laughs> um so anyway, so that was, so I did that job and then, you know, and then they extended, uh, you know, I ended up, they extended like a, they gave me a summer job. So they, they asked me to stick around over the summer. So I guess, I guess I repaired the relationship between the, the school and the ministry. So, so I guess that was mission accomplished. And so then I get to university. So university of Toronto and I still, st I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I took a, a bunch, you know, I took philosophy and psychology and Greek and Latin and, and, um, but I also took, but this, I took introduction to computer programming because I thought, well, this is something I ought to enjoy. I do, you know, like computers and I see their value. So I took this, I took this course, you know, inter introduction to computer programming. I had a great teacher and he, um, you know, we were programming on the blackboard, um, but uh, he, the way he showed how to, you know, we would take a pro whatever problem we were trying to solve, whatever it is, you know, I don't know, bubble sort or, or something like that. And, um, and I, and I think, okay, I sort of understand the problem, but I think, you know, how are we going to solve that? I just wouldn't know how to solve it. And, you know, we have this, you know, and basically he would start just writing on the blackboard, like the things that, we, you know, at a high level, the things that we're going to need to do to solve this problem. Like, I, you know, I don't know, we're going to need to create a list where we're going to, you know, put the results and then we're going to, you know, take two of them and compare them or whatever. He would just start writing down at a high level, you know, just paraphrase in English, the steps we're going to do to solve the problem. And then we would convert those into code. At the time it was a Turing, which was a an educational language developed at, at University of Toronto. And then the the little, the bits, the fragments of English that we'd use to um, 
to you know work out how we were going to solve this problem he'd say and then you leave those in as comments maybe you clean them up or whatever but you just you leave those in as comments and something about this process for me seems so like soothing like you you know and and i basically realized oh you know you've got this you know, programming to me is you sort of, you take this empty text file and you just start putting your worries and your problems into it. And then you just keep, you refine them and you refine them and you refine them. And, and what you end up is a, a program, that, a, a, a well-commented program that solves your problems. And there was something about that process or that approach to programming that just really clicked with me you know kind of made order out of chaos and confusion and 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 for whatever reason that that's what that's what made me say okay i know this is i know this is what i want to do and then one of the courses i took was called natural language processing um and that course was done in Perl. um and I kind of don't remember too much about really Perl or, or the domain of that, you know, I know a bit, but, but, but I remember one of the things that struck me was that, you know, Perl had this regex operator, you know, like a, a regex matching operator as a built-in, not as a function or whatever, but just as a syntactic piece of the language. And, and, and it was so well suited to the problems that we were solving um, in the course or whatever. And, and so, that that stuck with me. I never really became a Perl expert, although Perl and you know, I ended up using Perl sometimes to solve you know one-off problems um, in in my programming career. So I might mention that later. So basically, I got exposed to some languages, but C was really the only one I came out of with with some competency at a school. But uh, but in the summer between third and fourth year, I got a job as a research assistant at the AI lab at U of T. Um, which probably sounded more glamorous than it was, but I was essentially, I was a, a Java programmer now, and we were building a, vi a visual knowledge modeling tool in Java. And, um, and so, so this is my first programming job for sure. And so, and there was a guy there who was, I think he was the original author. He was certainly the current maintainer of, of, of the program. And he was another student. And, and so, you know, we got introduced and, I can't remember exactly how he started me off, but you know, we, you don't get too far without needing to either create a, a source file or open one up and read it or whatever. And so, um, so, so you know, he, he's with me and he says, "Okay, you know, open up this file or whatever." And so, uh, you know, it was a Java source file, and I opened it up in Notepad, and uh, and he said, "Like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, like you're." We're not going to be working in Notepad all summer, uh, <laughs> programming in Java, and so he he sort of sat me down and 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 you know he was a, a Vim user, so um, he started teaching me Vim, and um, and and so he he was sort of the guy who started putting programming tools in my hand, not languages, but sort of the tools around the languages, and and um, and we had a you know, when I started forming opinions on syntax highlighting or whatever. Um, and so that was a kind of a really fruitful time. And we did a, we did a, a bunch of pair programming that summer, which was just, you know, if you've ever done a lot of pair programming with someone whom you're on a wavelength with, 
it can it's it's just kind of a, a magical experience it's just fun and motivating and an incredible way to for knowledge sharing and it's just a it's really a lovely human you know experience to do that and so it's fourth year now and now I need to it's you know the end of, of undergrad is coming and I and I need to find a job and so through um, just kind of, you know, random luck and a networking phone call, a friend of my mother's had worked at a company and, and thought it was a good place to work or something. And so he sets up a, a, a phone call for me with a guy named Leslie Goldsmith, who worked at a company called Affinity Systems. And, um, and he and a guy named Hugh Heinemann had, had founded this, this company, you know, it was a small company. A, you know, small to medium software consultancy in the Toronto area. And Hugh and Leslie had worked at a company called IP Sharp and Associates, which, um, you know, I'm sure everyone on the panel knows and, and most of your listeners know, but, but IP Sharp and Associates was a uh, sort of a worldwide company with a heyday in the, in the 70s, I guess. And they were a, a, a timeshare company, which is sort of pre-internet cloud thing and they and they uh um built applications um for for customers and so they were a consultancy and they did it all in APL and and they had their own flavor of APL and uh and a bunch of um you know luminaries from the field uh worked there um you know including uh Ken Iverson and after he left IBM and Arthur Whitney and um, I think even a, a panelist on uh, uh, on a Raycast might have worked there. Um, I was regarded Leslie as one of the luminaries. <laughs> well, so well, so did I. Obviously, I didn't work at at, at IP Sharpen Associates, but but so but Hugh and Leslie had worked there, and there was uh, this crew of other people who had had worked there too. Um, guys like Mark Dempsey and Dave Markwick and Raj Chahan and uh, Heather Bowen. I, I, she may have come from Reuters after the acquisition. I'm not sure, but but there was this this kernel, this crew of of, of folks that had come from IP Sharp and Associates, and so I joined this team. And you know they'd been working together for ten years at Affinity Systems, and you know some of them, you know, for fifteen years or or or, or so before that at, at IP Sharp and Associates. So you know some of them had been working you know 25 years together by the time I got there. Um, so I was really kind of slipping into a an experienced team building, you know, really interesting and and, and challenging projects. And so, like the the first project I started on was a um, it was a, a an online trading system for day traders, um, and uh, and so the first piece that I built in that was was a the monitoring system for for the back end of this thing so um you know like a, a centralized process and a little bit of library or whatever that would sit in all the other processes and report to them and um and it, so it was a great like sort of bird's eye view of a complicated system and a great way to sort of get my feet wet and and you know keep in mind here like I'm this was in C++ I'm learning C++ on the fly I've never seen an IDE before. 
Um, so, to, you know, I was using Vim and source files before. I think this might have been my first exposure to source control or whatever. You know, I didn't know what a memory leak was. I remember Leslie one time, you know, was demoing something I built on and, and, and that the demo went well or whatever. And then I like stopped the application and he said, you know, uh, you know, you've got memory leaks because, you know, at the bottom of the console of the IDE, all these, you know, memory leak warnings came by and sort of, I was, you know, at this point still like, oh, I got to look at that stuff. Um, so I, I got that kind of monitoring system off, off the ground. And then um, and then I had to do a little bit of a refactor. And so that was sort of interesting going in and touching other people's code. And, and then the next thing that needed to be built was what we called the quote server, which was sort of a, like a feed handler. It was basically the, the piece of the system that receives all the real-time market data. Um, from a market data vendor and shuttles it to, you know, normalizes it and shuttles it where it needs to go or whatever. And so it's, you know, it's a high performance, you know, real time application. And, um, you know, the, and that data is, you know, really critical to this, to this trading system. And so, you know, I'm not sure like if, if most companies, you know, that needed to build one of those would say, well, like, let's give it to the kid who doesn't know what an IDE is, <laughs> but, um, but, I, but I do think that that maybe at, at IPSA, that is what they would have done. Um, and so, you know, the, the cultured affinity systems, which I think was sort of modeled after the IPSA culture was, yeah, well, we'll give it, we'll give it to the kid, basically. And um, so that then became my project. And, you know, and, I, and, and it's not like I was alone. I had some really, really smart people that wanted me to succeed and, and were, you know, going to help me do it. And, um, and, but from that point on, I became the market data guy. And, uh, and so I, you know, I built that, that application. And, the, and then we, you know, we ended up doing a, a similar project just after that, which was, not aimed at traders, but making market data, real-time market data available basically to consumers. And we were doing that for a major newspaper in Canada. Um, you know, and this, you know, we were streaming real-time quotes to uh, over the browser to Java applets over the browser in 2001. So this was, you know, I think kind of state of the art at the time. Um, and, and so, and then, you know, we had to, and all this this quote this market data problem grew and you know we started including options data and level 2 data and and having to construct a level 2 for the canadian exchanges which was based on an order book and but it wasn't i wasn't just the market data guy there was you know so much variety the types of projects that we did kept changing you know the next project after that i think i was writing a a device driver and we had some piece of you know robotic equipment for whatever and i had to you know install port sniffers and figure out how to drive this thing and uh and then and then uh and then the next project after that was was in java and we had to build this i don't know sort of a general app you know application framework almost sort of pre-microservice microservice architecture kind of thing and and you know, i could talk a lot about it but it was really interesting and 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 detailed and um and i remember switching to java it had been many years since i had done java and uh and you know the the attitude was there it was like don't worry about it like it's it's the same. Like it's just it's all the same, you know. And and as we subsequently went on and had to you know do a, a C sharp project dealing with you know 
uh, private health data or whatever, whatever it was like, oh, it's the same, you know, C sharp, it's just the same. Um, and so that was sort of a kind of a common theme is these, these, these languages are all the same. And, and I remember at one point I started, you know, I started having these epiphanies, not just how the languages were all the same, but how the projects were all the same. You know, they all tended, they all had data coming in, people who wanted something of it. And, and, and I remember at some point I had, I had, uh, uh, you know, I was working up this sort of just sort of this grand unified architecture for everything idea I had of of just this sort of way to solve all the you know how these problems were all the same and how you know one architecture could solve them all. And I was presenting it to Leslie over dinner one night, and I remember he uh, he said, "Well, this is this is very APL like this thing you're proposing," and uh, and I. And I and I didn't know what he meant by that, but I did know it was a compliment. Um, it was a thing I knew about, and it was I, I knew it was a background that that my colleagues shared, but it wasn't it wasn't part of the solution of anything we were building, and so so I never was I was never really exposed to it. But then at some point we we had a project, and the project was um, basically to store and provide access to and analysis of. Um, electrical consumption data for um, for the province of Ontario, and so this was a database that um, you know for five million homes and businesses reporting every hour or fifteen minutes or five minutes or or the target was was every five minutes. So it was this this was a database that was going to grow and grow and grow and and we needed to be able to analyze that. And so this was certainly a, a big data problem. And so. You know, our first engagement was a, was really a research project to recommend a technology to solve that. You know, Leslie, with his IP Sharp background, was aware of um, of KDB Plus um, and the Q programming language, and and we ended up um, basically we ended up recommending that he convinced. Um, those of us that were working on the project that this is what we should recommend to the client, which we did, and we um, built a, a proof of concept and had a bake off against another vendor, which we won. Um, and so then we were hired to build this uh, electrical consumption data project. At this point, Q is put in my hand, I've, and this you know this problem is is in front of me to solve, and and really from from that point on, Q, the, I just became a full-time Q programmer. And um, and I basically never went back um, from that point. Oh, and I wanted to say when, when you know, unlike C-sharp and Java, when they said, oh, this, this is, don't worry about it. It's the same, it, you know, it's just the same. When, when Q was put in my hand, they said, okay, this is not the same. This is, this is, this is going to be different. Um, in case you didn't notice, just in case. And it, and it, and it wasn't. Although, you know, at first I was basically writing the same type of code. You know, you can write some pretty Java-ish code in Q. Um, and which is arguably a strength or um, it's, it's, but it's certainly it's certainly possible, and and I did that, and that's sort of I think maybe one of the classic sort of uh, learning curves you have to go through. But um, at some point, we kind of switched from uh, project mode to product mode, um, and we were acquired, and and we started building a product to solve problems like the one we had we had just solved, and 
Um, and so that was really interesting and, and, you know, building a sort of a, a layered product that, that partners could customize and, and doing all of this in, in Q and KDB. Um, and then, and so we did that, I did that for a bunch of years. And, and then after 21 years, that job, I decided to make a change and, and move on and, and, uh, it took a sabbatical to just kind of focus on some, some other areas of, of my life. And, and, uh, and I started listening to this podcast um, in that time. And, and I knew that, um, you know, because I'd known from all those experiences at affinity that, that these languages and that culture was a part of a sort of a greater community. Um, and I was sort of interested in that. So I'd started listening to this podcast and so through the podcast, I'd heard about the competition, of course, because it because it had been advertised on there. But um, but also, you know, I found myself listening and we strangely having like opinion, kind of like I don't want to say shouting out, but maybe shouting out at times or whatever. Like I remember, you know, one episode where Connor and and Bob, no, sorry, uh, Adam and Bob were <laughs> debating, you know, whose trains were better, you know, Jays or, or Dialogue APLs. And uh, and sorry, Bob, but like Adam ended up convincing me, like I like I like the way they work. In, in APL, but I'd never written a train like you know I hadn't heard of one until you guys were talking about it, and so I was I had this experience of feeling finding myself with strong passionate opinions about a topic I had no experience in, and I thought, well, this is dumb. Um, so <laughs> it works for me. <laughs> so I wanted to um, so I wanted to learn APL basically, and so then I thought, okay, well, the, the competition is would be a great a great way to to do that, and um, and so I uh, what actually started warming. I started working on just as sort of as an, as an aside. I saw at one point I saw someone give a demo in Q where they used the Q REPL as like PowerPoint, basically. Like they'd written a bunch of functions that could emit ANSI codes to the terminal. And so they could, you know, go through slides and I think they could run code and then, you know, put it in the result up and leave it while running more code. And it was just, it was this fascinating demo. And, you know, it's like, I forget what the topic was because all I could remember was um, the, the, what was shown. And so I started, um, I started working, I wanted, I, I wanted to see if I could make something like that. So I started doing that, but because this podcast had polluted my brain, I thought, okay, I'm going to try to do that all tacit in Q and write the whole thing with no curly braces. Um, and so I started doing that for a while and, and I was, and I started convincing myself, okay, I can do this. Like it was, I was getting somewhere and, but then I thought this is, well, I thought this is dumb. Um, it was definitely <laughs> harder than it needed to be. And, and what I really wanted to do was play around with APL and, and, you know, the deadline on the competition was coming up. So I sort of abandoned that project and, um, and, uh, and then I started on the competition and, and we could, uh, you know, go into detail on that, but, uh, but just to get out of the, my background phase, that sort of, that's the story from a kid who's never seen a computer to, to the, to the APL competition. It was really cool. Um, well, it was great meeting you in, in Portugal. I got to see your, your winner's presentation live. That was really fun and interesting, but it's also been really fun here, uh, hearing more details about different parts of your history that you didn't say, uh, you didn't say there. 
Yeah. And for those that we mentioned at the top, but uh, for those that haven't seen that, it is uh, available recorded on YouTube. We'll put a link at the top of the show notes. And it is a both um, your talk, Michael, and I'm going to forget the actually, I have it right on my screen here. Lee Tuching. Yes. The other uh, uh, student the, winner. Yeah. One of the student winners um, are both fantastic talks that are, um, you know, great if you're you know, array language curious and you want to see sort of uh, maybe not a beginners, but sort of someone that's new to the language. I can't remember what the other individual also was new to the language and um, had some interesting insights and stuff. Um, I'm I'm glad to hear you you say that because in that presentation, I I really, my goal was to, um, to maybe to be useful to potential newcomers and try to break down what for me at any rate I'm, I'm not claiming to be expert or anything but but to for me you know the thinking process of how to you know I took one of the problems and tried to show like how do you 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 know given given the that the tyrannical you know empty text file you know, how are we going to solve this problem I tried to sort of break down um approaches thinking approaches in, in a way to to get there so I hope I hope that might prove useful. Yeah, it's really it's really good if you're looking for that if you're looking for that perspective how to approach the the solving of the problem part more so than maybe how you would spell the squiggles. It's really good for that. That kind of goes back to your original story about your professor who started with, you know, what we need to do here and breaking it down to a computer language. It's consistent with that, isn't it, Michael? Yeah, yeah. And I think for, you know, for whatever reason, you know, the way my psychology works is I'm I'm just sort of perpetually stuck in beginner's mind and so you, you know my whole narrative is always like the first time I did this and the first time I did that and and how um you know what a you just how exciting it is to sort of learn new things and and, and learn new ways and I have a bit of a question there where because you've uh, programmed in like largely a lot of traditional languages and then more recently array languages one of the um approaches to teaching uh, computer science and programming in, in the sort of conventional computer science schools is to teach, well, especially like high school, sixth form, college kind of age, is um, about, you know, breaking down, decomposing a problem into the necessary steps uh, until I guess you get, get it down to the point where, oh, I know how to express that idea uh, in this computer language. Did you find um, a difference either in, you know, the level at which you would start putting stuff to code or like how much you need to break things down or whether you even would break things down in different uh, circumstances, you know, back when you were solving problems in, in more conventional languages and then uh, whether that's different or similar with array languages? Um, well, yeah, I mean, certainly you need to break problems down <laughs> depending on the size of your problem. And um uh, you know, it's a, I know. I know. A couple of weeks ago, you guys were talking about sort of leap code versus like production applications, and I thought that was I thought that was an important discussion um, because I know I've met a couple of people who are interested in this topic but find it hard to like see the 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 cross that bridge from the sort of puzzles and, and brain teasers into you know you know, how to build a, a whole complicated bulletproof production worthy application. And, and, um, and certainly, you know, it can be done. Um, so, you know, so obviously you need to break down a, a problem like that. Um, I, I guess I would say, um, 
you know, one of the things about these languages is, is often you, in, in a traditional way, you break it down, you break it down until you know how to solve it. And then you build up the solution and test it or whatever, and then you get it working. And if it performs well enough, then you move on and, you know, or, or whatever. And that's sort of, that's the process. I find in these languages, I frequently write, I solve the problem three, four, five different ways, and then pick the one I like the best for uh, according to whatever, you know, whether that might be readability or performance or reusability or whatever. Um, so th that is, that's definitely a different process. Related, um, this is maybe tangent now, but relatedly, one of the big changes for me too is, is of course, um, is the workflow where, you know, in that traditional way, you know, I talk about, you take an, you take an empty text file and you start putting, you know, you describe your problem into it and then you refine it, you refine it, and then you get it into code. And then you try to get that text file to, you know, you pass it, get the compiler's seal of approval and then see, see what the runtime game looks like. Um, whereas in these languages, it's, it's kind of goes the other way. It's like, I'm, I, you know, which is to say the REPL was a new experience for me, but I am building the code in the REPL and, you know, try experimenting, getting it to work, maybe seeing if I can get it, whatever, if I'm golfing it or if I'm, whatever it is, I like, you know, try it a bunch of different ways. And then when I've got something that I'm happy with, you know, I cut and paste that line into the text file and sort of cement it. Of course, I might come back and change it or whatever, but but it's this sort of, you know, I, I work and test and debug the code till I'm happy with it and then put it in the text file, whereas in a traditional language, I'm putting, typing code in the text file and then later figuring out whether I'm happy with it. You were speaking earlier about this is not the same and also about uh, in, re in relation to Q, not the same as Java, not the same as C Sharp. And you also mentioned that uh, Q has got features which allow you to use what you know in the languages that are the same and get started. And that's definitely one of its one of its virtues that you can get productive more quickly. Uh, but but also a pit it's a trap too. Ah, uh, yeah. So keep keep that thought because that's exactly what I want to ask you about. Because if if you approach K de novo, um, you've got to pretty much grok the whole language before you can get anything getting anything going in it, whereas Q is a soft introduction. So in my day job, I'm particularly interested in the transition to vector thinking, because from one point of view, that soft introduction in Q, the trap that you just spoke of, um, is uh, it, it defers that process. And as someone who's come through that process um, with a good deal of awareness because you've got other programming languages behind you and you've got a lot of support around you at the time from, you know, uh, APL vector guys. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about that transition. What helps? What works? What makes it harder? Sure. Um, well, I, I I mean, I, I guess I would say that for me, like it was a try, you know, I had to the, you know, the first major thing I wrote in Q had to, I had to rewrite because it performed like I'd written it in Java and we didn't pick Q to get Java level performance. Um, so, 
so you know to some extent that that sort of that can be a you know if you're on a timeline or whatever that can be a a, a stressful experience but but i would say you know if, if you were looking for a bridge language you could do a lot worse than q um you know you've got you know invoking a function is normal quote unquote normal you know you take some you the name of the function and then uh you know some form of brackets and then the arguments to the function with some form of separators yeah it's a little different than the traditional c-like ones but it's it's the same sort of idea and by the way your function can take any number of arguments including zero um or including nine or whatever um so you know you can like a and you know, and the control structures are the same and or, or, or quite similar. And 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 it's funny enough, you know, like where your case statement is a dollar sign or something like that. It's sort of it's you know syntactically different enough that it feel that it's feeling exotic. And that's part of the trap, I think, is you think oh, I must be doing this right because you know I figured out how to use each, but really you're just writing loopy code, you know, or or whatever. So um but but it is it is it it is sort of a soft landing, and and then one and one of the first things that it forces you to contend with is the 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 change in precedent rules, precedence rules, and um, which is sort of magic. Like to me, like getting away, like you know, losing bed mass and all its you know, and the extent the extension. It's like it's like it's like taking a weight off that you didn't even know you'd been carrying for for decades having to remember that remember those things and you know like people you know you know bed mass isn't that hard but um you know when you start getting into logical operators and bitwise operators and you know pointer dereferencing and and how to you know remembering what order you know just how to parse this you you know you have to look up look it up in a table or devote a lot of your brain to memorizing it and running it through the table you have in your head versus just you know just scanning the line just reading it or writing it is such a great experience for me like that that is um such such a magical thing so so the new programmers, like the the programmer coming from a classical background and encountering Q, has to they have to learn that, and that's so that's a great you know new thing, a great new experience. Um, but of course, they can still write this this loopy code or whatever. Um, I I guess you know for me i'm i'm not sure exactly how how to get over that next hurdle um but but i but when you do i mean for me it 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 turned my thinking inside out you know figuring out how to write code that solves the same kind of problems you're used to solving but um but having it look so different is i mean it's a great experience it's a challenge i think you know a lot of that is sort of done historically through apprenticeship you know word of mouth um you know oral verbal storytelling or whatever um but but you know for me like you know the main the main 
concepts you, you got to wrap your head around is, is sort of getting rid of the outer loop. You know, you push, you want to push the loop further and further into your code until ideally it disappears. Or if it doesn't disappear, you know, you've got the smallest, you've got, you're looping over the smallest possible thing. So, you know, a, a classic sort of anti-pattern I would see in Q is a, is a big lambda each over the things you want to do it over. And it's, it's, you may need an each in there somewhere. It's not that, you know, you may need to do something with a primitive that isn't vectorized or a function that isn't vectorized, but you want, you want to get that each into, so it's just over the things that need an each. And so it might kind of feel weird because you might need five or six or seven eaches potentially if you've got, you know, if this is a big lambda thing you're doing. But but the point is, because once you have a big outer function and a single each over that, you've lost the opportunity to use, you know, the vectorized functions, any vectorized functions that occur within that lambda. So so that sort of that process of of pushing your pushing your loops, you know, deeper and deeper into your code until hopefully they evaporate is is um you know that that that's a kind of it's almost like a literal inside out thinking compared to the, to the way I'm used to, and and then same with same with branching too. Like I would I used to have a in the traditional coding world, I I, I had this sort of almost visual intuition to what you know what a solution to a problem ought to look like. You know it's uh you know, okay, this is going to be a for loop with a condition, you know, where I'm going to iterate over the items, and then I'm going to test some condition of interest over each of the items. And if the condition is true, I'm going to do this with it. And if it's conditions false, I'm going to do that with it. So it's going to be some sort of double humped for loop kind of thing, you know, and you, you would just know, and if you, or, you know, maybe the problem's more complicated, and it's a quadruple humped double for loop or whatever, but I would just, I would just sort of instinctively know what the solution for a given problem ought to look like. And if I opened up a piece of code and it didn't look like that, I think, hmm, I bet you something's off and often I'd be right. And it was this sort of kind of gut sense thing that I, that I, that I had, but of course, you know, in these languages, you know, you don't do the branching either, right? Or you try generally, you, you know, Q supports that sort of thing, but generally if there's a, property of interest over the things you care about, you compute it for all of them at once in one thing. And then you do what if you do whatever you want to do to the ones that have the property, you do it. And then you do it whatever the other thing to the ones that don't. And then, so it's just sort of a, a four line, uh it's just, you know, it's just four lines. Um and uh you know and you don't you know well what if there's none? What if one of these sets is empty? You just do it anyway. Like it's, you, you know, you just, cause it, it ought to all fall out, you know, and it's really quick to whatever reverse a vector with nothing in it. Michael, when, when, when you moved to, well, when you moved over to APL, did you already have, like, was the epiphany fully formed from working with Q or were there other things that you found when you moved to APL that you suddenly thought, oh, th there were areas of Q that you didn't like, I guess is APL more revealing to this process or did you get it all from from working with Q just in a different paradigm? Um, well, no, I, APL is definitely revealed more for sure. I mean, I I was because I had the experience of learning Q with with you know veteran APLers. You know, I think I I kind of got a lot out of it. But but um, so you know, I was I was coming. I was definitely coming to APL with with a leg up. 
for sure. Um, but, um, you know, and I, I had started like, or, or certain things were sort of took me further or, or refined it further. Like, you know, so tacit, I know there's tacit in Q. It's limited compared to APL, but there was some tacit stuff and I had encountered some of that in a while, but it wasn't really, um, you know, it wasn't really on my mind. It's a podcast that really just made me aware that it was a thing to have an opinion about or whatever. Um, you know, but I was, but like I had started to embrace the terseness. Of course, Q is, you know, less terse than APL, but it's still pretty terse compared to Java and, and very terse compared to how Java is frequently written. Um, but, you know, so, but one of the things like, you know, that I did in Q was there's a, there's a, there's a primitive in Q called enlist and it is, it's not the enlist in APL. It's more, it's the enclose from APL. And, uh, and this is something, you know, you use all the time. This is, this is a very common thing to, to want to do, to, to basically turn a scaler into a list or a list into a list of lists with one item or whatever. And so, and, and so it's such a basic thing that you want to do. And I found in list six letter word, often taking a variable afterwards. So needing a space, um, uh, too long. <laughs> and so, um, it, you know, one day I'd had enough. I think I was maybe working in a, on a weekend or something. And so I felt a little more free to pursue something that uh, a pet peeve, a personal pet peeve. Um, and so I added to our utility library, you know, uh, a shortened version of it, ENL, E-N-L, for enlist. And, and I just, you know, sent an email to the group. You know, I couldn't take it anymore. I did this, uh, you know, let me know what you think. And, and, and the group actually adopted it. But the way I implemented it um, was as a lambda, as a function, curly, you know, basically curly brace enlist X close brace. So as a function who passes its argument to enlist and returns that result. And uh, and then at some point I noticed Leslie, because I'm I'm a diff reviewer, by the way. <laughs> um, uh, I noticed that Leslie had changed it. He changed the implementation to enlist, sorry, to anal gets enlist. So which is you know, sort of like, duh, you're just creating a synonym or whatever. But at the, at the time, it kind of blew my mind. Like, oh, I can, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of the most basic tacit definition. You know, it's, it's the degenerate tacit case, arguably. But, um, but uh, it, it sort of it blew my mind. And that sent me on a whole new way of, like, um working you know functions as 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 uh as first class citizens is is a great feature of q and, and i'm sorry bob i know your question was about apl and I, I will steer it there but um but uh but this idea all of a sudden realizing oh like functions as data like that was a that was a big kind of mind expanding moment for me and 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 the stuff i could do in q and with its terseness you know, I could start, I could build tables in code, like literal tables and put functions as members of the table and have it shown like drawing that in code as a two-dimensional uh, array, basically, then have that control the flow of the program and just like really, really different, interesting stuff. But, but you, but Bob, you were asking about kind of going to APL. And so, 
certainly, certainly tacit was, um, as it, well, it kind of was brought, what brought me there, an interest in it. Um, and, and, and then obviously, you know, rank is a, is a, is a different concept. And, um, and so those were good to, good to play with. But I guess on the other hand, uh, the thing that you lose is the higher order functions, right? Because I know BQN has that, but J and, and APL do not. Like the first class, like functions as data. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah like putting a function in, a, in an array specifically is one that you just, well, APL has these things called fun arrays, but they're really weird. You, you have to create them from namespaces. I mean, they're not the same at all. Right. Yeah, they're not. Yeah. And I, it, it, it is probably when I'm programming an APL, it, it, that is the thing I keep reaching for. And yeah, I can, I, you know, put stuff in names. You know, I know they can be kind of values of namespaces in a sort of dictionary kind of way. And there's some stuff you can, you know, there's classes. So there's like ways to encapsulate functions that are useful. Yeah. I mean, why do you have to encapsulate it? <laughs> I want the function. Right. You know, we're putting two functions in a pair and then using, you know, a Boolean to get which one you want out of it and then just executing that or whatever. It's, it's um, it, you know, it's, it's, it's that's a, a really nice feature of Q. But I, I did, if, if you don't mind, I did want to talk about the sort of one of the, I did have like a, one of the aha moments I had in APL, at least with, with Tacit, which I know is maybe a controversial topic for, for some people. <laughs> um, but, you know, when I, like, when I got to the competition, I, you know, Tacit, what was, Tacit was, well, and the sort of my personal history, but the, but the, the idea to, to play with Tacit is what said, okay, I'm going to do this now. And so I got to the competition and there's, you know, the phase one problems, which are basically 10 one-liners. And I, you know, my initial goal was, okay, I'm going to do all of these tacit because that's why, that's why I'm here, um, which I failed to do. Or there's some of them were just got hairy enough that I just needed the safety of, of, of arguments basically. But I did, but one of them, but, but I also, Okay, one of the questions, you know, you had to write a function that basically looked, you know, two lists of equal length and how many are, were not the same. Like if you line them up, you know, compared one to one and two to two and three to three, like how many, how many differences were there? And so that was, which is basically some not equal. Um, and so that's, you know, that's a pretty cute, like that was, that was comfortable. That was easy. That was, I knew how to do that. It was just a two, you know, like a, I guess it's called a two train or, or whatever. Like it was just, that was pretty easy. But the next one was I had, it was like given two arrays, um, list the list, you know, return a list of things that are in uh, uh, one, like I just one array, but not both. So what are the list of things that are in uh, either one, but, but not both. And so, you know, I worked and I worked, like I, you know, thought about that and I tried it a few different ways. I'm sure there's a lot of ways to solve that problem, but I, you know, but I came across, you know, the solution I used, which was union without intersection tacitly. So just union without intersection. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I just thought, you know, union without it, not a function that takes its arguments and, and provides, you know, and passes its arguments to union and then passes it to intersection and then 
computes, you know, uses, passes those results to without, not that function, just union without intersection. And it's like, you know, to me, it was like, oh, this is like a line from a haiku. Um, you know, it's like a metaphor for marriage or whatever. Like, it's just this, it's like, there's something to me that was kind of poetic about it. And I thought I really. But it's got eight syllables, so. Yeah, I know, I know. I, um, it, you know, and the more I looked at it, and if you look at it, you, you like, it's, it's, you know, the union symbol is sort of a, a like a wide symmetrical U and then um, tilde and then a in, intersection is that inverted and it, it's very kind of beautiful and and there's symmetries to it you rotate it 180 degrees and it still says union without intersection and if you like reflect it on either axis it says intersection without union which is you know i don't know what kind of means i don't know what that means but it's it's it's, it's just it's, gonna be an empty result i guess yeah and and that was kind of interesting and then and then if you zoom in like the tilde if you look at the tilde it's sort of union and intersection fused together horizontally you know so it's like it's like a fractal you know you go in and there's just more of it and i um so so this this was for me, this was like, oh, like I, I kind of clicked like the, the appeal, the sort of mystique or, or the, why this is sort of, for me at any rate, interesting. Like it was, it was, you know, aesthetically pleasing. And, um, and, and so that was, that was really interesting to me. Although I'm not sure that I'm a huge, like, pass it guy like it like as i went on especially as i got into like phase two of the problems you know where i was needing to solve bigger problems and i would personally i would find myself like i can't tell you how many hours i like you know battled the interpreter to build a a tacit expression for what i was trying to accomplish and succeeded at great personal cost <laughs> and then ultimately decided this isn't this is not this to me to my taste at this moment in my experience did not seem like the best way to convey the idea or the way, you know, if I came back to it and needed to refine it, you know, fix a bug or whatever, what I wanted to, what I wanted to, to come across um, or, or to, if I needed to debug it. So, so I wrote in the competition, I wrote a lot of tacit stuff that was not in my submission at the end of it. But I was really there. I wasn't really trying to win. I was using trying to win as a way to to uh, to learn APL. So um so I certainly succeeded in that or you know getting a feel for tacit at any rate. Can it take you back to what you were saying in about learning and apprenticeship? And you spoke very warmly earlier about pair programming. Mm -hmm. I, I reflected some years ago that um Pretty much, pretty much all the APL I'd mastered or learned, I'd learned really from somebody or from working around people who knew stuff. I'd learned learned the language that way in the first place. Um, and this is kind of a bit of a sideways jump, but as a young man, I converted to Zen Buddhism, which distinguishes itself amongst the Buddhist schools as a direct transmission of the Dharma of the truth from one heart to another. Uh, it's 
pretty pretty much the basis of all the teaching I've done successfully has been based around pair programming. I was first trained as an APL instructor using by Ken Iverson using his working introduction to APL, which was basically teaching people in pair programming before pair programming had a name. Uh, and when I reflected some years ago how uh, working from home and being dispersed around the world was kind of isolating me from all the great colleagues I used to have from whom I was always learning stuff. Oh, you're doing that, you know? Uh, we started a series of, I don't know what we call them, they were kind of week-long APL house parties or array language house parties, uh, which we called Iverson College. We started that in 2011 just to get people back in working in the same room again and people come from all around the world to spend a week doing their work in the same room so you could kind of talk about it afterwards. So um, th this, is, this is a challenge for me, a standing challenge, is getting people over that hump you were talking about from the what Joel Kaplan on this podcast called the one potato, two potato approach mm -hmm. um, to thinking in terms of vectors. I don't know any more effective way of doing it than really just like one-to-one -one pair programming uh, as you as you described it. And unless I hear of a better way, um, if I can hitchhike a ride on, on passing Seagull up to um, KXCon in May, I hope to be there and do what we call the Vector Dojo and set up that kind of pair programming so people can experience it. So that's that's my thinking. I'm wondering if you if if you can help me on that in any way or ideas or whatever. Well, I I completely agree. I mean, I think you know I had you know that experience I had at the AI lab at U of T. Um, that so there's a lot of pair programming in that, and then basically pair programming with with Leslie at Affinity um, at, for you know the start of my job there completely completely made me who i am you know completely taught me how to be a, a program and you know there's it's you know whether it's whether you're trying to learn array or um you know the how to internalize the keystrokes of vim or whatever like it's it, it's it's just it it's just such a way to connect with a person and and learn stuff and it's so tailored to the um to the person you know if they don't get it you don't move on whereas you know a video or a book or a, a class you know doesn't doesn't work that way and so you know you can it, it so yes i you know to some extent i would say you know zoom like there's some there's certain physical sharing you know two office chairs at one desk and one monitor is is sort of physically awkward um but, you know and but but other than that like the the human connection from being in the room talking eye contact real eye contact not not via a camera um waving your hands you know like just all that you know interpersonal um experience i think is is can't be beat like as as an educational as a, as a way and 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 especially when you um 
and for a code base too. You know, we're sort of talking about languages and tools, but also, you know, you often have a code base and to, you know, to it's to be given the tour um, through the code base, you know, let me walk you through this. Let me show you search for this and these files or, or whatever is, is just a really, a really great way to, to sort of hand off a, a code base as well, or, or to bring someone into a code base. Well, maybe we can, maybe we'll both get to KXCon and be able to do something there. <laughs> All right. I have a list of like seven things I need to ask slash say. Because <laughs> this is, well, the first thing I'm going to say is one of the most recent movies I watched in theaters was Avatar 2. And like, this is t like 10x, 100x better. Like I've said it before on other podcasts that like, like, I don't know, listening to this kind of stuff, it's like better than sports and like entertainment and Marvel movies for me. Like, Hearing you talk about the poetry of the intersection union without, you know, uh, it's just, uh, it's, it's going to be great. It's, I can't wait for our listeners to hear this because these kind of conversations, I just have to, I was a couple of times going to interrupt and ask a question and then Bob would ask the question. I was like, you know what? I'm just going to treat this like I'm, I'm at a movie experience. Um, but so I guess I'll, I'll start with my most recent thing that I want to say, because we were talking about pair programming. I think one of the things too, like that makes, because I've had good pair programming experiences and like less good and the best ones are the ones where there's like a complete amount of like mutual respect between the programmers not in that like the bad experience i've had there's there's been a lack of respect but it's more like you are not worried that asking a question is going to come across as like that i don't know what i'm doing and i think that there is a ton of that today in the industry because salaries have gone up or you know a little bit of shift happening in the industry right now but like i think a ton of people are completely afraid that if they do that kind of pair programming experience like day to day we're fighting with compilers and trying to figure out how things work and people are very concerned that if people saw the way they worked that they would be exposed as a fraud when really that's what we're all doing. Like I've talked to some of the most senior people in the industry that work at companies like Apple and Adobe, like, like ex executive senior people that still do tech, like technical work. And I, I remember one time I won't say as actually, I think he'd probably totally be fine with me saying this. Cause I might've said it in some other context, Sean Parent, he works at Adobe, extremely senior, you know, luminary of the C plus plus world. And I remember having lunch with him at a conference once, and then he was telling me about this project he was working on, and he needed to stack overflow, how to get some like Apple hardware to do. And I was like, wait, what? Like, repeat what you just said. Did you say you were on stack overflow? Like my view of this individual is that, you know, he's this kind of godlike figure that lives in the clouds. And, you know, they, they tell stories of him, how like he just sits there for four hours without writing anything and like programs it in his head and then puts it down on the screen and it just compiles because he he worked out all the bugs in his anyways that that's like the stories that they tell and then you have lunch with them and he's like oh no yeah i was you know I, I found some stack overflow posts it was like the third answer that actually did it anyways the point being is that i think pair programming there's not enough companies that do it and i've even at certain companies have tried to suggest it and managers are worried it's going to lead to like less efficiency because there's two people doing the same job. And it's, it's a real shame because there are other companies that it's their bread and butter. And if you go into it knowing that like we hired you because we think you're smart, no question is stupid. You know, there's things that I'm learning every day and everyone's learning every day. Anyways, that's my little bit on pair programming. I, sorry. Can I just jump? I just want to say one more thing about pair, pair programming, which, which, I'm not sure if I used the word before, but I think it's really important, which is that it's fun. And, um, and like the, the laughs 
some like at affinity you know we, we would this might be more in a say a whiteboarding session than maybe a pair programming thing but like if we were trying to solve a really hard problem like someone would always very dryly throw in a ridiculous suggestion for how to solve it like a really really bad way to do it and it would be so fun and every once in a while that would actually spawn some sort of lateral thinking that would open up some new possibility that that it you hadn't occurred with but just fun and laughing with your colleagues um you know is motivating and creates loyalty um you know people will stay longer somewhere they enjoy working you know that's sort of pretty pretty basic stuff there but at any rate so yes yes pair programming is is awesome and fun and and super useful and that whole concept of like egoless programming which i think is part of what you were getting at you know not being afraid to look dumb or you know we want the best solution not you know from for people to think i can do the best solution it's like i i I recently posted a, a youtube video and i'm a rust beginner like i've just started learning rust or maybe for a few weeks now but you know i made some mistake that you know a ton of people, some people are really nice about it, but other people are just like, oh my goodness, like this is, and I'm, you know, they're trying to be kind of like harmful, but I'm just like, this is perfect. You know, I put stuff out in the world, people tell me, and like, you know, who knows when I would have learned that, but like now I learned it faster because like, honestly, like good code review where people are pointing out mistakes or places where you can do something better. Oh, Hey, did you know that there's a convenience function where you can spell it, you know, six characters less? I love that stuff. And it's, uh, it's fantastic. There's a, I think in like musician circles or certainly jazz musician circles, like there's a, the, you know, the, there's a theory that like you always want to be the worst player in your band. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's how you get better. Yeah. That's, I mean, I think, um, why is his name eluding me? Uh, Chris Latner, the individual behind uh, Swift and uh, Clang, LLVM and a bunch of other projects. I think that's one of his like quotes that you can hear him on different podcasts is that he always is searching, you know, he was at Apple for a while, then Google for a while doing TensorFlow for Swift stuff. And um, if, you, if you listen to him on podcasts, he's always saying that like, whenever I feel like I've, you know, I'm not at the bottom of the totem pole in, t- in terms of some technology, like I want to switch because I always want to be learning from people around me, which I think is amazing to hear from someone, you know, that senior in, in what he's been doing. Um, all right. I got a couple other comments and questions. <laughs> First one is another plug. I plugged this on my other podcast, but so we, um, we brought up uh, po- the poetry and uh, the podcast is Oxide and Friends. It's by a guy named Brian Cantrell and Friends. And it started out as him and some some colleagues of his. Uh, I think a lot of them used to work at Sun Microsystems. I know Brian did. And I think Steve Klapnick, who I might be pronouncing his last name wrong. He's one of the co-authors or main authors of the main Rust programming language book. They have an amazing podcast. My favorite podcast of all time is Functional Geekery. Um, and I recall I was working at Amazon at the time down in Silicon Valley and I would go for these runs at lunch and just like crush these podcasts. And I learned about Elixir for the first time and Erlang for the first time and F sharp for the first time. And just so many of these languages that I'd never heard of, because at that point I was just a C plus plus programmer that knew a bit about Haskell. And, uh, it was just such, I like, I remember that time so fondly because I had 120 episodes to go back and I could just like listen to them in a, a row and I'm having The exact same thing this time going back and listening to Oxide and Friends. The reason I bring it up is because on two different episodes, a couple apart, I'll find them and put them in the show notes. 
um, Brian Cantrell, who some of people might know not not know by name, but is the individual that had an article interview with Arthur Whitney. And so um, Roger Huey, I think when uh, he passed away, they mentioned his name on the podcast in the episode that was close to that time period. And then a couple episodes later, uh, they mentioned that at some point, um, I think during the interview, and it might not have made it into the interview with Arthur Whitney, uh, Brian Cantrell asked him, what do you think the best analogy for programming is you know is it you know some management system or etc like if you had to choose like sort of an analogy what would it be and arthur whitney's response was poetry which uh i just thought was fantastic so anyways people folks should go listen to that podcast and uh i guess the, the i'll skip a couple of the other things and maybe maybe we'll have a behind the scenes where i can ask these later because i'm going on too long um i think this has sort of been answered uh, here and there, but maybe not directly. So I just wanted to ask explicitly in case if there's anything that's been missed. I know when we talked uh, back in September in person, you were talking about sort of the things about Q that every once in a while when it would come up, you'd be sort of those moments where you'd be shouting, oh, I hope they mention this. And, and that sometimes we hadn't mentioned that. I think, you know, putting the functions in a sort of a pair of functions and, uh, and then executing one um, and a couple other things you said, but are there other things about Q that sort of you want to... Um, Tell the listeners about like things you might uh, appreciate in the Q language that aren't possible in the other array languages or that are more ergonomic. Um, just that in case there's something that, you know, hasn't been mentioned that uh, you might want to. Um, well, yeah, I, I mean, I guess I think the main, the, the you know, the, the thing, the, the event you're referring to, that was definitely being able to put functions in data structures and use those data structures as as sort of ad hoc control structures for your program. So, um, you know, which, um, which, I, which I know, I think, Marshall, you mentioned that when you were talking about BQN and the control structures episode. So, so that, that to me, that is like a big feature of, of, of Q that, that, um, that I use a lot, you know, and, you know, for example, you know, in a classical thing you might do in a, in an application is you've got these events going off or messages that arrive from some, you know, upstream, whatever. And, you know, the first thing you got to do is, okay, you deserialize it or you deserialize enough of it to know like, what sort of thing do I have? I mean, in Q you've deserialized the whole thing, I assure you, but, um, but you, you, so in a, you know in C plus plus or whatever, then what you what do you t you take this thing and you um, you look it up in a big switch statement. Typically, this is the the code I would write. You look it up in a big switch statement, and it's sort of every line is a you know if it's a this, create a new this spelled differently, um, and uh, you know and then off and then call do on on it you know so it's i've got a foo message coming in so create a new foo message object populate it with the byte stream that's coming in tell tell it to finish deserializing and then do itself do whatever you know the programmer said we should do when a foo comes in so so just you know being able to like like you know index you know if those if those literals that tell you what type of message it is are you know dense set of small numbers you can just literally index into uh, an array of functions and just, you know, go off and running. And it just, it's so fast and um, it's such a clean way to construct something like that. Um, yeah. So I've done that a bunch of times. And one of the other cool things about it is that you don't have to have just one function. You don't have to have just a list of functions. You can even have a table of functions where, you know, one of the function processes it, 
maybe even you have another function to, you know, deserialize or something like that, or another function to tell you some property of it, um, all that kind of stuff. You, so you can arrange your whole program very nicely into a big table of functions where you've got the type of element and the thing you want to do. Right. And it's often like, it's sort of, it can be a multi-dimensional, like here's, here's the, you know, here's the pre-processing, processing, post-processing we want to do for each of these types of messages. And so that's sort of a three by N table. And each entry in that might actually be a chain of, of, of functions. So, yeah. you know, where each function, if by convention returns, you know, its input, or possibly modifying it. So, you know, you might say, look, pre-processing, I want to uh, confirm that the sender had the right to send this type of message. I want to audit it. I want to log it, you know, whatever. And so that's my sort of my pre-processing chain, which I can customize by function. Um, and then I go into, you know, processing. And so you end up with these sort of control cubes um, and, and then the outer code, the sort of the top loop that runs your program is just sort of like, you know, take the thing and, you know, find the cell and run it, um, run, run it through the function. So, so that yeah. is to me really, really neat. And then that with the terseness is, you know, I, I would, I think I mentioned this earlier, but I would literally, I can, you know, I, uh, um, someone, by the way, this is sorry, apologies for tooting my horn here, but some, someone once told me that, you know, I, he'd come across a, a table I'd written in, in Q like, a, a literal, like a literal table. Like I was constructing, I was using code to create a constant table basically. Um, but I draw it like a table, you know, I use whatever the separators between the rows and the fields and the rows or whatever, like they'd be like the pretty little boundaries, the table or whatever. And, um, and, you know, they said it was the, the nicest, you know, table they'd come across, you know, in queue. So, so I felt, I felt very pleased by that. That was a former guest on your show actually. But, um, but uh, but then like in the cells, you know, you can like you can get a lot if you're doing something like that, you know, you can put a lot of information in the cell because it can be so terse. Um, so so you can really just kind of get this bird's eye view of the program and just this just this in a nonlinear, you know, the code file with this nonlinear representation of how the program works is is kind of neat. And I guess we can point this out as one thing that uh, APL is trying to remedy. Uh, I don't know if Jay has any plans, but um, this array notation that Q has, um, you've got your brackets and you put all your stuff in the middle and you can use either semicolons or new lines as a separator. This is pretty similar to what um, what Dialog is starting to roll out sort of as, a, as an array notation, but um, you'd still be missing it right now in APL. Yeah, yeah, there's some history behind the the development, but Adam is working on a more official proposal to send around the uh, APL vendors and other community members who might want to have a say. So that if we implement it as an actual language feature, we're not going to like make a horrible mistake and want yep. to go back later and <laughs> and regret those choices. And there, there's certainly been discussions on the J forums, but I think most of it reverts back to Jurons, which I'm not sure is the solution we're all looking for. But often that's held up yep. that way. But you know, it's 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 being discussed. Well, Connor, we've got another guest here who's absolutely haunted by aesthetics. <laughs> <laughs> I was so when you were telling when you were telling the ENL enlist, I was like, oh, this supports like whatever I was saying a couple episodes ago, like so much. It's it's that like for these, and that's the thing. It's like I know that there's people, maybe not the listeners of this podcast, but I'll talk to 
programmers at large at different conferences. And, uh, you know, you, if you've listened to the, my other podcast, Bryce, you know, at one point he, when we were having this discussion, he was like, what did characters ever do to you? Like, you're so <laughs> against the character count. And I just said, like, for primitive things, it's like, you know, who wants to go around writing four infix PLUS, you know, and, and then, you know, three, like it's for something as fundamental as addition, you know, if you're using it, especially in a domain where it comes up all the time, like it hurts my soul to have to, you know, write, you know, in C++, it's STD colon colon PLUS. It used to be bracket INT in bracket uh, paren paren, you know, with C++ 17, we got rid of like five of those characters, but it's still like, it's plus it's an, it's math, it's math, it's plus. And like Haskell, you can do it three characters. I think in Q you, with the parens, you can do it with three characters and in certain languages like lisps, you can do it just with the plus. And it, it breaks my heart when like, especially when you experience that experience, it's like when you said, when you go to APL from Q and you're used to be able to, used to be able to do something a certain way. And then you don't have that convenient tool that you're used to being able to grab. It's just, it's, it's, it's sad. Um, and yeah, I, I, some people will say, you know, oh, it's, it's a, it's a silly argument, but I really do think that there is like the, the brevity with, with which you can express yourself and subordinate, you know, syntax and details that don't matter uh, affects the way that you write code. And, and the way, like you said, all of this at the end of the day, it, it's fun. Like it is when you, when you write that three line, you know, solution every once in a while, you're like, it's so beautiful. How, how, why would I ever want to write this any other, like it's, it's, yeah, anyways. Uh, to, to be clear, to clarify, I think there are two things we're talking about here as well at the same time. One is the ability, functions as first class citizens that you can put into array structures and then do array manipulations to choose which functions to apply on, on your arguments. And then the other one is a, a literal array notation for in your source code, like writing, uh, well, literally an array rather than having to construct it from primitives like you have to do uh, most of the time. Just want to clarify that Dialog's not putting in functions as first-class citizens in case someone got got that <laughs> uh, got that idea from 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 the way the conversation went. I can't leave this one alone. We have a three Canadian <laughs> episode here. I'm going to quote another Canadian. Said, I came so far for beauty, and I left so much behind. <laughs> I have no idea who that's by. <laughs> that's Leonard Cohen. Oh, really? <laughs> um, yeah, Leonard Cohen. Oh, I don't think we're in Leonard's league, but, uh, you know, <laughs> he can always aspire. Um, I did want to, but on, on the topic of maybe poetry, but certainly, you know, brevity, like the, to me, like, you know, there's a, one of the arguments against brevity is is a claim that it it is uh, counter, it, it's opposed to readability. And um, I just wanted to, you know, argue the other side of that for a moment and say, you know, I, I find that, you know, one of, the, one of the great things about these languages and certainly, you know, one of, and, and getting going from Q to APL was that there was another sort of gear of, of, of brevity I could get to and that you can, um, what I find is that you know, so, okay, two things. So one, you know, for example, you know, what in a traditional programming language you would, you know, might take a paragraph or, you know, or a, you know, half page or whatever, you know, font size, these things matter, but, but, you know, a big chunk of code can be one line of code. And so, yes, it's, you, you know, you really need to get, you kind of have to change your focal length if you want to see what's going on there. 
but there's but but you can get it on one line and then you can and usually with enough space left over that you can have a comment to the right of it that describes what what not how you're doing what you're doing but what you're doing or why you're doing doing it and, and something about being in that sort of terse mindset makes me want to get that that English comment as succinct as possible, you know, as simple as possible, but with, but no simpler, you know, how, what is the, just, what is the poetic expression of why I'm, you know, the, I'm, whatever it is you're doing, you're, you're going to take the first and add seven to it and blah, blah, blah. You know, you're, you're doing something. And some people might argue, well, the code is, is self-documenting, but I always think there's this other level where you're, you know, you're, you know, why you're doing it or what business problem you're solving you know, translating this in, into some other way. So you've got these sort of like two parallel narratives that that are going on, which is the, the code and the comments and that that brevity uh, kind of creates space. So rather than interspersing them, you can have them side by side, which is, um, can be really useful. Like when I would, in the competition, when I would find a bug in something I was writing, you know, I'd scan up the the comment side of the code to figure like, you know, okay, this is, I've got a parsing problem here. So let me go find where I'm doing the parsing, you know, and I can just go up that right-hand side, find that, and then switch back over to the left side of the code, you know, to, to, you know, figure out where the bug is. So, so, and, and because things are so compact, you can do other things that I just wouldn't really think to do in other languages. Like, for example, you know, these, this is sort of non-standard styling, I suppose, but I will introduce a space somewhere where typically you wouldn't, you know, if you, if you say, if you think consistency is king, you know, you either put spaces around binary operators or you don't, and then that's just the way it is. But I, I would do things like I would put a space, if, if, if I've got two lines of code and they have a relationship with each other, you know, the, like if they're mostly the same, but slightly different or something like that, I will line it up so that the similarities line up and so that the differences line up so that you, you know, you just, you scan it and you see immediately, oh, this is subtly different, but importantly different. Um, and, you know, if that's a, one of these double hump for loops, you know, or something, you're not, you're not really going to be able to see those differences, but in these array languages, you can do that kind of thing. And so there's a, like a different type of readability that's, um, that you get with this, with such short, you know, all these, you know, where the whole standard library, you know, is like, is one character each or whatever you, you, there's, um, there's just different opportunities to play with style and readability in ways that are that are not just pleasing but i think like useful like add more clarity it's it's i mean and you articulated this so well earlier and that was one of the things i was thinking in my head is the because it's so terse you take the paragraph and you put it on a single line um and you mentioned earlier that that presents the opportunity to solve it a several different ways and specifically um you pointed out that there are there are different motivations you know does perform am i going for performance here am i going for refactoring here am i going for the ability to parameterize this and reuse it somewhere else and i i think that's a lot of people they miss that i gave a talk algorithms as a tool of thought that that was the whole point is that i showed like nine different ways to do this one short simple problem and it's not about that like i'm going for the fastest one i did do a performance analysis at the end but like sometimes like you know one of the ones i always run into is whether i'm gonna sort a list 
And then if I'm doing an n-wise reduction with a non-associative operator like subtraction, so I'm taking the difference between an increasing uh, list of numbers, you know, if I want to do the opposite where I'm sort of, I, wa I want positive numbers instead of negative numbers because that's a property of subtracting, you know, a left number from the right, I can either apply the self or the commute operator to the minus in APL, or I can just reverse the list after sorting it. Um, or I could even try and get some sort function that passes it a custom binary operation with or the two different grades or whatever. Like there's very quickly three different ways that I can take my initial sort of n two n-wise reduction with subtraction after sorting a list in APL. I can add reverse, I can add commute, or I can switch the grade operator. Like, and it's not like, oh, well, the performance matters. Sometimes you know, you're working with people that don't like the combinators and they don't want to see a little selfie squiggly and be like, what is this doing to my binary operation? Sometimes reversing after sorting is going to be more readable for folks. Anyways, it's just the ability to do that in APL or array languages is something that is not impossible, but like you can't rewrite something in C++ that's a single line in APL like three seconds after you finish writing the other one. It's going to take you like a few minutes just to just to go and find the library with the function in it that doesn't require to use to, for you to use for loops and stuff like that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so this is uh, this is getting to uh, uh, approaching the record of longest podcast recording. Um, on that note, then any final questions? <laughs> for michael slash uh michael is there anything that we haven't covered i, mean, I feel like we should just bring you back because we didn't even get into the contest side of things too much you gave us a couple highlights but i feel like we could continue this for like a whole other hour or two um if we had the time um but any final things you want to sort of say or mention before we wrap this up you know i was thinking as i was preparing for this i thought you know one memory i had was when uh you know we had a a PM, like a, like a project manager who, who worked with us, um, who was just such a great guy to work with. Like he would, he would literally at, you know, at times, you know, he was non-technical, but like would sort of roll up his sleeves and become the guy that knew how the, the extraction tool for the data migration project worked and, you know, operator or whatever. So he was like, he should have been a, a programmer kind of thing. And I remember at one point he was asking me, you know, what, you know, he understands that there's something, there's different, it's a different way to think or a different way to program, you know, could I help him understand what's different about it? And funnily enough, I also um, used potatoes in my example. And, um, and I can't, I, it was something about, I said, okay, like, I used a, a cooking metaphor and I can't, I, it was mashed potatoes or boiled potatoes or something. I said, look, if, say, say you were making boiled potatoes and uh, you know, the traditional way to do it would be to like, you know, you take your potato, you wash your potato, you peel your potato, you boil your potato, you grab the next potato, you wash it, peel it and boil it. And then I said, but you know, in, in, you know, in Q or in these Ray languages, you would, you know, wash all your potatoes, peel all your potatoes, boil all your potatoes. And he said, oh, great. You know, that's, that's, uh, I get that. That's really helpful. And then I said, but wait, there's, you know, there's this, there's this other level that I don't think I'm at. It's like, I'm striving to get there. That's why I I keep pursuing this is like, there's this other level where you know you boil your potatoes and you filter it for skins and dirt <laughs> <laughs> you, you know and that's that's uh, that's where we're all trying to get to 
All right. Well, I will start to wind this down because we are, I think we've probably hit the record here, but uh, definitely thank you so much, Michael, for, I know we've been trying to schedule to get you on for a, a while ever since you won the contest and uh, the wait was uh, well worth it. And yeah, I can't wait for our, our listeners to, to hear this episode because I think they're going to absolutely love it. I will throw it to Bob to let people to know you can contact us at contact at arraycast.com. And uh, we are always listening. People are coming up with some really good suggestions, and we are pursuing those. Uh, MATLAB may be in the future. And uh, also we've got, I think, uh, Jay's schedule coming up because we've got the new version of Jay coming out, I think, sometime in February. Uh, not an announcement, but just letting you know you can reach us at contact at com, And we look forward to your interaction. And as always, if you want to, like I said, we've mentioned a couple times now, uh, Michael's talk will be in the show notes. Other, other resources, people, are you on? I'm not sure if you're on socials or anything like that. Where people, not really. No, that the the talk would be the all right the best well, that they're going to find. If he's not on social, that means we're just going to have to bring him back. So uh, <laughs> subscribe, and you'll uh, hear the, hear the next one whenever it's out. Uh, but once again, thank you so much for coming on, Michael. That was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And with that, we'll say happy array programming. Happy Happy array programming. programming.